You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone. Before we get started, we did want to mention that we have available a six-week video series that we'd really like for this to be a resource for groups. So get your friends together, get people from your church together, and go through this six-week video series or six-part video series. You don't have to do it over six no, weeks. No, no. You could do it over – you could binge it. You could do it before breakfast You could you binge to. it if you wanted yeah. to, a whole day. But it's on How the Bible Actually Works, which is the popular book by Pete Enns. Uh, where we take a deeper dive, well, we, I mean, I say we, I mean Pete. You're always a part of this, Jared, in one way or another. Yeah. You know so, that. do you want to say a word about You're this series? Yeah, I just, it was fun to do. It was a fun book to write, and I think, you know, I think there are some important things that I talk about in that book that I think are really great for thinking about the Bible differently and thinking about our faith differently. And uh, yeah, we're excited to have maybe groups use this. I think it'd be a lot of fun and a good time of community. So there are six, about 10 to 15 minute videos and a discussion guide that you can use for conversation. So just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash Bible video, and you can learn more, pick up a copy, and give us some feedback. Let us know how it goes. We'd like to have more of these resources for groups coming out. But for today... We also have a podcast today, don't we? We do. We do. And we are going to be talking about thinking about Jesus today. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting topic. With our buddy Trip Fuller, right? Who, who is, I, I think we call him affectionately the godfather of podcasting. Yeah. I mean, he's been doing this since I was a, a toddler. No, not like, that long. I mean, at least, how, at least 10 years. At least 10 at years. Least, I haven't looked. We, sorry, Trip. Yeah. We should have checked how long you've been doing But <laughs> a lot longer a than long we time. have. Yeah. yeah, and he's yeah. got hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Humbrewed Christianity. Christianity. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and our topic is thinking about Jesus today. We'll just let the episode speak for itself because you really can't summarize it in a tweet. It's just not going to happen with Trip Fuller. When we say Jesus is the Christ, then we're not just talking about Jesus as a historical figure or a way for us to understand and encounter God. Uh, We're talking about how we situate ourselves in the world. A disciple, when they show up in the world, is informed and shaped by Christ. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normal people. The question that I would have to just to start this is, how do we connect this Jesus figure to us today? Like that, that's a, it seems like a perennial challenge of the Jesus of history and connecting it with this person that we call the Christ. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do we do that? Well, I mean, in one sense, people are doing it all the time, right? So if you just think of how many Christians there are in the world, and the way they connect Jesus to all sorts of stuff that can be really ugly, violent, 
Mm-hmm. You can even have people uh, think they're on Team Jesus and they're anti-Semitic. And you're like, I don't know if you've noticed the New Testament recently. But like, yeah. the question of Jesus and in the present day uh, is, is twofold. One, he's a person of history, a person of interest, a person of influence, right? So there's historians, biblical scholars, and things trying to uh, understand not just Jesus in his history, but then the interpretation and meaning and, and power for Jesus in shaping in the world. But I think for people that are within the Christian tradition, when we say Jesus is the Christ, then we're not just talking about Jesus as a historical figure or a way for us to understand and encounter God. Uh, We're talking about how we situate ourselves in the world. A disciple, when they show up in the world, is informed and shaped by Christ. So I I think it doesn't set aside those historical questions and the big questions around God and how all that stuff works out. But I think for our lives today, what if our fidelity as disciples uh, in the version of Jesus we've been given is wedded to principalities and powers, say white supremacy, Christian nationalism? I don't know. There's just a, a few off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. And then if you use the gifts of historical research and you discover that the one we call Lord, second person of the Trinity, eternal son, an image of the invisible God, is diametrically opposed to those top-down totalitarian cross-building powers. That's a problem. Well, then it is a problem. <laughs> and it's actually real good news that there's a whole bunch of people that call Jesus Lord if the way of Jesus is actually liberatory and life-giving and uh, can invite us to address a lot of the problems facing the world. So, so uh, the historical angle is important. You know, a historical mm-hmm. figure, and you look into Jesus in context. But then you said, um, h- how about the Christ part? What does that even mean? Jesus <laughs> the Christ, you know? Well, I got my I, own answers. I want to hear your answers. But, you know, well, what is I mean, it? Well, first, it's obviously his last name. Yes. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> H, and H is his middle initial, right? Okay, got it. Yeah. As, 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 of course. I've yeah. read that on the internet. Um, the You know, well, I think the word Christ is important just because it so often is used as if it's an immediately obvious title, mm-hmm. right? But it has a history. Uh, it you know it connects to the Messiah in uh, Jewish tradition, uh, the Anointed One. Uh, and if you just start paying attention to Hebrew scriptures, even my you know my my friend like Pete, he'll even point out mm-hmm. that there have been a bunch of people that they are Anointed Ones of God, and they are not God from God the source of all creation and things like that. So like even the identification of Jesus as the Christ, when you look at the multiplicity of ways it shows up in the biblical tradition, and in particular, I think for Jesus in his historical moment, second temple period Judaism, eschatologically informed in the face of Roman oppression, then when we call Jesus the Christ, it means something socially, culturally, politically, religiously. Uh, And it's about how we as disciples that identify Jesus as the Christ, show up in those spheres, in the social, the political, the cultural, the religious. Mm-hmm. But but the Christ doesn't take us outside of history, if, if this isn't getting too abstract, because it does mean something in the first century world. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- let's, can we throw in the word here, Lord Jesus Christ? Does that, is that sort of another angle to take on this? I sort of see both Jesus and Christ as very much historically anchored and situated ideas. You know, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm working at here, uh, Trip, and again, correct me if I'm just going off 
in, in a way different place. But I hear, you know, the Jesus of history and the Christ of theology, right? Yeah. That seems to be uh, sort of an angle that a lot of people are taking and talking about Jesus, and not not to get off on this rabbit trail. But is that I mean, is that is that a good way to think to make that kind of distinction of you know the Christ is what we talk about when it's more the heavenly you know post resurrection thing rather than the earthly thing. Well, it, the the conflict between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is a conflict that emerges with historical consciousness. Like once we started noticing ourselves as agents in history and then thinking about history as an object of study and then trying to get back to the source of events, right? Like once you started talking about a historical Jesus and the people that were doing it also went to churches that read the New Testament and thought the conclusions were the apostolic creeds, Mm -hmm. then the Jesus of history seems a bit foreign to the Jesus of wherever that church is at any moment. Because it's our Mm -hmm. natural tendency as people to project on things we love the best version of ourselves. Now, if part of who you are is ugly, then you can project on Jesus and love Jesus. And you're like, Hitler has a point, you know? And, (laughs) And so the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, that tension exists and it can be fruitful for both people of faith today to help us figure out in what ways have our own projections and ideologies been thrown on Jesus. And also the Jesus of history, if you pay attention to much of the history of it, that even happens with the historical Jesus, right? So there's multiple stages of the quest for the historical Jesus. I use scare quotes. And and even those quests, uh, we understand that different historians at different times went back and found someone that was compatible to their world. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's this dynamism that uh, we miss uh, if we, you know, opt for one versus the other, especially as Christians. But the first thing you said uh, when you added the Lord part on, mm-hmm. the the most annoying thing for me as a <laughs> theologian that this isn't going to go ahead. That has written two books now on Jesus and a bunch of other things on Christology and historical Jesus research and all this kind of stuff is how popular C.S. Lewis is. Not for like Narnia. Great. That's fine. Not as good as Middle Earth, but nonetheless. But that trilemma, Lord, Mm -hmm. liar, or lunatic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always hear when I get the Lord thing. And the problem with that is it assumes you understand what the content of Lord is. Mm -hmm. And so then you look at your friend, because obviously you're witnessing to them, because nothing says good friendship like threatening them to throw your Savior under the bus. And you look at them and you say, Pete, you know I love the Lord, but is he a lunatic? Are you saying that the one I love is crazy, made this stuff up? Are you saying he's a liar? Mm Mm-hmm. Or is he Lord, right? Like that trilemma assumes that the Jesus of history, you uh, in the in the early church meant the same thing by Lord as we do, and claimed identity with God, and that you either have to call him crazy or a liar, or you don't agree. And I don't I don't know New Testament scholars that in in, in early church historians that think that's the case. Yeah. And the crazy thing is the Gospels themselves. What are their, what's the big question? It is not whether or not Jesus is Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, very clear, Jesus is Lord. 
what they are pointing out throughout is that the content of what it means for the person, the disciple, in the community of disciples, when you call Jesus Lord, what does that mean? And so, you like, uh, Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses show up, and, you know, and Peter and company are just like, oh, this is great. Let's build some booths, son. We're hanging out with the OGs. We got Moses, got Elijah, got Jesus. We got a glowing Holy Father and stuff. They say, God says, listen to him. And Jesus walks down and he says he turns to Jerusalem. What does Peter do? He's like, have you thought about this? They're going to kill mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you need a new PR agent because you're about to get axed. And Jesus resisted because what it means for him to be Lord is, right, you know, metaphorically, with Moses and Elijah behind him, like the Torah and the prophets behind him, is to go to face the perverse uh, relate the perverse expression of of politics, society, culture, religion uh, in Jerusalem, all the way to the cross. And so, mm-hmm. if we just get the label right, Lord, we miss the real life question for discipleship: what it means for Him to be Lord. And so many Christians are confident they know Jesus is Lord, but they haven't wrestled with the actual content of the ministry of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because we do that. Because we don't face down the principalities and powers that are death-dealing institutions and systems in our day, then people roll their eyes and are like, so much for that. Well, I just want to clarify, because it, then are we saying, when, when someone uses the word Christology, because that's a word that we, we hear quite a bit in, in the context of these conversations, Christology is this wrestling with what this historical person in the context of the New Testament and uh, what that means for us today. How do we make sense of it? How, what's the relationship between this Jesus and God? And what's mm-hmm. the relationship between this Jesus and us today? That sort of is what we're talking about when we're talking Christology. And, and that used to be an easy question to answer relatively. I mean, n- never easy, but <laughs> it's been complicated in the modern period. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think the the simple simple. We'll find out if you think it's simple, but way of putting it is that Christology historically in the church has been around two questions. Like, how does the divinity and humanity in Jesus relate? And that's called the person of Christ uh, in theology nerd circles. And then the other half is the work of Christ. What did God do in Jesus? Like atonement, salvation, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. When in our contemporary context, there's a difference because we don't exist in a world where basically everyone, you, you assume most people believe in God and there's some variation of Christian, right? Like, right. But for a large portion of church history, like theological diversity was the ty- kind of diversity I had growing up as a Baptist preacher's kid in rural North Carolina. Religious diversity was I had a friend that was a missionary Baptist. And I don't know if you know about them, Mm-mm. but they're very suspect. Okay. Um, and, and so like now – that's just it, – it just doesn't work. Briefly, I put it this way. Like, when you ask the very same questions, how was God in Christ and what did God do in Christ, we can't not acknowledge kind of the broadly postmodern consciousness. Post, post-Christian consciousness. Yeah, yeah but, but I think but, yeah. the uh, – it, it's post-Christian in that you can't, like, assume, right, like Christendom. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you think of, like, p- philosophical postmodernism, they, there's pluralist consciousness, Right? Like we live on streets with people of multiple religious traditions, and some of them are better humans than us. Really hard to think that a homeless first century Jew is the image of the invisible God. It's not immediately obvious. Mm-hmm. Cosmological consciousness. 
Will you make the same statement? The eternal word of God was made flesh on Jesus. That's already striking when the the earth is the center of the cosmos. Now the cosmos is 13.8 billion years after a fluctuation in a vacuum. And the idea that this one little bitty speck at this one little bitty moment, that was the eternal reason of the divine made flesh? Not as immediately obvious these days, you know? And there's social consciousness and historical consciousness. False consciousness is also a fun one. Like, we don't, we don't know why we believe what we believe, right? You and I, the three of us, we have podcasts. And we try to give intellectually curious and integrity-filled accounts of the Christian religion. And we think we're just trying to be honest and blah, blah, blah. Well, what if we just have a mommy issue and don't want our very devout mother to be disappointed with us? So we've used our intellectual wit and reason to do this because mm-hmm. we don't want to disappoint her. But we can't be honest about that, right? False consciousness. Marx, Nietzsche, You're Freud. You're talking about Jared, aren't you? I, I did. Pete. Take this off. I thought take this off. Okay, we'll we'll have to cut that part. All right, but uh, uh, this episode sponsored by BetterHelp, uh, where Jared (laughs) can indeed find someone that he has to pay to talk to him about his mommy issues. Uh, But but you see what I'm saying? Like like even the statement Jesus is the Christ, when you put it in pluralist consciousness, uh, cosmological consciousness, social historical false consciousness, we. You can't have the same security again. It begs you to no longer begin with the conclusion, but to take those questions and challenges in the act of constructing and working it out as you process things. So that is part of our, you know, let's say doing theology, which we all do on some level. Everybody does theology. Yeah. It's part of our doing of theology to work out even those most fundamental questions like what is God like and who is Christ and et cetera, et cetera. What does it mean, Lord, and what does you know, what does Christ mean and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we're not in, we're not inheriting a structure as much as it is we're creating and recreating structures that we've inherited. Yeah. I like in a in a sense, after the downfall of Christendom and essentially the priesthood of the believer gone awry culturally now everyone has a kind of responsibility on them that is anxiety-inducing uh, because human beings were not evolved to have to wrestle with the big questions of meaning, purpose, and value and have to build everything up and figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, And it's kind of gotten to that point. Charles Taylor, I think, makes that point really well, a can- Canadian philosopher, uh, when he talks about the secular age. The, secu- the biggest threat isn't that, like, oh, we're all secular or whatever. It's that human beings still have all these same ginormous questions, and yet you aren't born into a community with the shared uh, narratives, rituals, language, and all these types of things that, that are meaning-rich. You're now in a multiplicity of those stories, and you're left to s- the, the filter them out. So it's not surprising people cling to whatever they were born into, because— when you walk out of it, this ginormous eruption of a- 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 anxiety and fear and stuff come up. Just, I, I mean, I'm sure you all get these type of emails from people w- when they start, you know, deconstructing or whatever that means. And they, they realize like, oh my God, I haven't stopped asking all the questions humans have asked around campfires for ages. It's just, I don't know anyone that understands my questions and I don't know if I even know the answers. Mm-hmm. And that feels so lonely. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it could be really heartbreaking. And so, 
part of so just don't mess with Jesus at least. <laughs> well, you know I, what I mean? It's like at least give me, give me that, but that's also a part of the theological yeah well uh, inquiry. Yeah, and 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 I think that's why you know in the book I talk about the difference uh, you know of the difference between the existential register, the historical, and the metaphysical. These three registers for thinking as a constructive theologian. Because a lot of times people think they have to have explanations for everything about history and then work out all the religion, science, and pluralism things in their metaphysical picture. And then they're allowed to finally engage again as a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's a really important in, uh, for me is that the disciples don't even have good answers to all those questions. The entire time, they even get Jesus wrong. But what did it mean to be a disciple? was you said, I'm figuring out what these questions mean and asking them in a community of people that have given themselves to the one who called us to love the least of these, the one who proclaims forgiveness of sin when no one even asked for it. That's the one I'm following. And I'm figuring these questions out because whatever's happening in the story of this person resonates deeply with me. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And it's not different, right, than what, it, what happens every time 
couple gets married. I mean, I've done lots of weddings and premarital counseling. And they look at each other and they think they're getting to the climax of some beautiful breakthrough. And then you have to let them know, did you know you're signing up to know who's going to hurt you more than anyone else in the world? But don't worry. If you just say, I was Trump, wrong, I'm parties? sorry, I forgive you. Because <laughs> you know. you're a ball of laughs over here, I'll tell you that much. But you're right. <laughs> but the, you, you're absolutely right. But because like that, the evidence that demands a verdict style of thinking yeah, about Jesus yeah. is like, let me line up all these Hebrew Bible passages. No Jew ever thought this meant this way, except the few that joined Team Jesus and then brought the Gentiles in. And then act like this evidence demands this verdict. And then what does it turn? Jesus is Lord into a syllogism, like a logical syllogism. But yeah. What yeah. if it's more like love poetry? What I think that's true. And that's what the existential register is. To you, this is so beautiful. It must be true. This is what I'm giving myself to. But you give yourself to another person in marriage, not because you know them completely, but because the mystery that they are seizes you. And you don't want to know who you are without it. And that's what the disciples were doing. Let's get back, because I think those three things that you mentioned are very, very important. And then I'm hoping we can throw some open and relational theology into this as well at the end. But before we go there, Jared, you had something that you wanted to say. Well, I I mean, I think what you're saying actually is really valuable for people who are going through what you said is is this deconstruction idea, which is... We thought that we had to know all the answers to have this vibrant uh, communal uh, religious experience, if we want to call it that, or faith-filled sort of life. And now that those foundations have been pulled out from under us and we feel like we're in this free fall, we don't I – think, I think we don't recognize that we can just live this life without needing those – basic foundational certainties. Is that kind of the what you're saying about this existential register is that, you know, Kierkegaard would say like this working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. It's this everyday stepping out and or, or I think it's Brian McLaren that says we make the road by walking. Mm-hmm. We're sort of creating this path and this existence. It's not that we have to have all of the pieces together in our heads in some abstract sense before we can just follow we follow this Jesus in this communal way. No, I, I I think that's really well put, Jared. And I don't like giving you compliments. Um, <laughs> but it's fair. That's fair. I'm used to it. Yeah, yeah. The, the the two things yeah, that, it really gets out of hand when you do. I just you don't hear okay. the end of it. It's days and days. You know. Yeah, I'm not I'm not even going to give you another compliment because Pete told me not to. He has to ration them out. Um, the, the the two things pop in my head. Uh, one is that scene where you get the famous where Jesus says. Who do people say I am, right? And the disciples are like, oh, you're like uh, Elijah. You know, he didn't die, went back up, came back down. Time to rock, you know? And others are like, maybe you're John the Baptist. Your head got stitched back on. You got a beard and stuff. We didn't notice, right? Like, and they give these responses that are completely viable responses Mm -hmm. to the actual historical person, Jesus. Right. They're not dumb answers. Right. right? And like today, you could get like N.T. Wright. And he's like, well, if you understand Second Enoch and all this kind of stuff, you build this historical Jesus up, and he was self-consciously internalizing the vocation of Israel with deep fidelity. Or you get like the Jesus Seminar. He's like, a wandering cynic sage, because we date Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas earlier, then he has these certain insights that kind of privilege open table commensality, and he functions more as a wisdom teacher. 
right? And these are historical Jesus things that are completely possible today. Plenty of scholars are like, that's, that's high quality material, you know? And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, thank you. The evidence of me demands that verdict. True, false question. You passed it. Well <laughs> right, done. Right. <laughs> he, he says, okay. my heavenly father revealed that to you. Mm. It, and, and that's what I'm getting out the existential register. It's like he's looking at Jesus and he understands how people could see it this way. But for him, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, the heavenly father revealed that to you. Whatever was getting itself done in that response of faith wasn't demanded from history. It was a gift of God, the gift of faith. Yeah, it's not something to prove. It's something to experience mm-hmm. and have be revealed. Okay. Yeah. And you, you know when you write academic books, you never tell people yeah. where the real ideas came from because it was probably with real life, and that doesn't always show up in <laughs> academic treaties. <laughs> but when I was in Los Angeles, I did my PhD and then stayed there for a while, worked at a very large UCC church. So, I mean, like, you know, for mainline Protestants, if 800 people go to your church, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. We did that without threatening hell, you know? <laughs> but there, I got in charge of adult confirmation. And what do you do when you're doing confirmation, largely with adults that have never been religious before? And I created a confirmation right. class built around what we just called experiments in truth. It's like we're literally like what Jesus did with the disciples. Let's just practice these things and then see if the world makes more sense from there. Hmm. And uh, I would let the group come up with them based on whatever the liturgical texts were uh, for that year and stuff. But, you know, twice I had a group choose, like, do not judge. And and what we decided was, oh, well, if we judge in the week, we'll text a group text of everyone in the group. So it's like, you know, 12 to 20 people. And you text just the name or initials if someone might be able to locate it and you can fabricate it because Jesus can translate. But when you get the text from someone in the group like Jared recently, because Pete said Jared shouldn't get affirmations, just texted me, Pete. And I get Pete on the text and I say, oh, Jared just texted Pete. He's judging Pete. And I say, God, you made and know and love Pete completely. Give Jared eyes to see him as you see him. And the faith to love him is you intend him be loved. Right? You do that throughout the week. And you'll get, Mm -hmm. you know, seven or eight texts a day. By week three, someone texts their own name. So now Jared Hmm. texts. He's like, Jared. And we are all like, oh, junk. Did Jared text Jared? That is Jared texting Jared. What is up with this? And then you pray. God, you made and know and love Jared completely. Give Jared the eyes to see you, see him as you see him and the courage and faith to love him as you intend him to be loved. And then you process that when you get together. Now, if you do that for a month, adults do not, they are, we're wonderfully gifted at not being open, honest, and vulnerable with people. But if you do a practice like that, and then you ask yourself, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Is he the Christ for you? Did this community practicing in this way open up the world in a way that it's so beautiful? It must, should, could it be true? And I think that is what you see in the synoptic gospels with what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He empowers them, sends them out. He's teaching them. He's bringing them along on a journey um, and showing them what a community of the faithful looks like. And from there, 
when you say, ask if you're the Christ, like, do you want to be confirmed that the identity of your baptism becomes your conscious decision? It's not about answering the questions I was trained as a philosophical theologian to answer. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But I did write a philosophical right. theology book about it. Well, that's okay. I mean, we can we can live in that. But you're saying that there's more. There's this. I mean, you, you use the term existential register. Can you say that? Can you put a different term on that for for people for whom existential means nothing? Yeah, it it it's a uh, like a uh, uh, speaking from the bowels. Okay. Like when you you know when you're sitting there and you're like, I have to tell this person I'm sorry. I really hurt them, and like mm-hmm. all of your insides are twisted up. Or you're going to ask someone to marry you. Or mm-hmm. you, whenever you get in those places where your whole being's present and you're like on the precipice, that, that, that's like an existential decision. Your finitude's before you, the possibilities are before you, and you're like, ah! Those are when like humans are most humaning. Eye contact when you make love, symphony, and you're resonating with all the people, that kind of thing. Uh, mm. And so when you call Jesus the Christ then it's about how do I locate myself in my most human moments in the world? Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that means something like God's at least as nice as Jesus. God's desire is not just for you to understand yourself as love, but your neighbor and your enemy in all creation. Uh, and that we're to order our lives and our communities to those ends so that we participate in God's work for the liberation and life-giving well-being of all things. And you do that not because you have to, but because you get to, because you're in love. It's like when you wash the dishes because you know your partner values it, or you hear, you smell the baby poop, and you're like, I got it, right? You could be told to do that because you have to, and that's different than doing it because mm-hmm. you get to. And I think that mm-hmm. existential register is one where when you call Jesus the Christ, you recognize the value you have before God. And then you live out of it. Um, mm-hmm. And Jesus has mediated that to me and to plenty of others. But I don't think uh, that doesn't mean everyone has to come to Jesus to have this encounter. But it does mean that like, it doesn't happen outside of real relationships and in communities. And this is the one that I've been blessed with. And I, I'm happy to invite people into it. But I don't think it's like I don't have some monopoly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is this this experience that you're talking about, is this what you mean by open and relational? Because I I think this phrase, open and relational theology or open and relational Christology, is just going to get more and more popular uh, over the coming years and decades as we think about, like you said, how do we think about God and Christ in a a universe that's 13 billion years old? I think this is going to be more and more. So, how is what you're saying connected to this open and relational understanding? Okay, so open and relational theology uh, kind of has three big parts. You have a, a relational part, like it's all <laughs> relational. And I say there's some expressions of Christianity where uh, because of God, how they understand divine perfection, God can't change or a, a, a number of different things where relationships are kind of less than the fullness of God. Um, mm-hmm. then openness means that when you're, that, that the future is genuinely open. So like one version of Christianity sees history as a book, like the eternal God before the world made it, wrote it. And our experience of history is like your finger running across the page, but 
it's not like it's really happening per se, right? Um, uh, because it's already written and settled. We're just experiencing the flow of a text, like, you know, I guess the heavenly father in the sky is reading it to us of sorts. Um, an open perspective doesn't see God's sovereignty and divinity because God wrote the book and holds it completely. It's more like God is the ever-loving parent who holds our hand with a flashlight. And so the openness of the world, the temporality of the world is internal to God. It's just God is the, the infinite God of love that's faithful with the flashlight shining it forward. So God knows more of what's immediate and less further out because the future genuinely involves creaturely cooperation and participation or resistance to God's desire. But the sovereignty part, the, 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 the God being God, is that no matter what happens, the one who goes with the world into the future is the infinite God of love who's holding the flashlight, inviting us to participate in the loving relationships, uh, the loving relationship of the divine life. And so the third part of open relational theology is that God is love and, and there's no remainder, right? There's nothing outside of the fullness of love. There's no dark so, side of God or whatever. So connect that to Christology, this idea of an open relation. That is a different way of thinking about God that probably many people have grown up with. But let's connect that to Christ and incarnation and that kind of business. Yeah, so an open relational Christology will then ask yourself, well, if God is incarnate in Christ and you don't have a picture of God outside the world writing, you know, writing a book outside of time and then inserting, right, Jesus mm-hmm. in it, then how is the eternal logos and spirit of God uh, participating uh, in the temporal open process such that Jesus is indeed the eternal son, the incarnate one. You see how like it, the, these images that That's are in scriptures, right? Because a certain part of the church assumed a vision of God where history is a book and God, it, it, these type of things, you, you develop a theology, but the actual language that exists in scripture and such uh, it, it images are there. So how do you rethink it if you have a different metaphysical commitment? And, you know, part of hey, the— hold on. What, uh, what do you mean by metaphysical commitment? Oh, yeah, Explain so that. there's two sides of it. One is open relational theologians, along with a lot of their Jewish friends who are biblical scholars, say the classical Christian God has attributes that sound more like Greek philosophers than Yahweh. Um, mm-hmm. And y'all have had plenty of uh, Pete's Hebrew Bible friends. So, on like, here. The, uh, like the like uh, the omnis, omnipresent, yeah. omniscient. Yep, they're very overrated in the cr- Greek form, especially omnipotence. Ooh. But the the other side of the biblical witness, God seems imminent and involved in participating in the flux of history and creation. Like even the prophets are like, if you do this, I'll do this. But if you do this, I'll do this. Or I repent, I change my mind. All that type of stuff. God has pathos, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That's like uh, below God's pay grade for certain parts of the uh, church history's uh, vision. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. 
it's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. But the other side is, like I mentioned earlier, the the cosmological consciousness. Like once you uh, 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 like look at the world scientifically, it gets a lot harder to preserve a picture of uh, of God that hasn't been dramatically shifted and changed by our scientific worldview, the kind of big history picture that comes from science. So both of those reasons and the problem of evil about omnipotence kind of led for a group of different theologies that grouped together as open and relational. And some of them that are more evangelical tend to make exceptions on some of the open relational rules to make sure you keep certain Christian doctrines like the incarnation, the resurrection, that kind of stuff. And others are like, let's rework what those things mean such that we probably don't really mean them anymore. What I, what I was trying to do in my book was get as high of Christology as possible and read the biblical testimonies as robustly and intensely as I could without breaking the open relational rules, like with intervention for the incarnation, for example, such then you ask, well, why didn't you intervene? Insert the time, like anytime there's unjust suffering and death. Um, But also that you don't relativize the claims to basically just being, uh, you know, one group's poetry. Uh, So that was kind of the, the task of the book. That is a struggle. It is. It is. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, and every time I, uh, you know, look back at what I said, I can't decide if I was good at it. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what the bad for. parts are till after everyone purchases multiple copies for their friends. <laughs>
Well, what's the uh, what's the what's the import of a lot of this? So, for the person who's who's really wrestling with those questions, what you said, you know, who is Jesus? Because for us, uh, in my tradition, to answer the question who was Jesus historically was the only the only answer to that uh, that mattered. So there wasn't this existential where it wasn't who who is Jesus to you? H- how is this an embodiment in your life? It really was. The only question is is the historical question, and and that once that gets ripped out from under us, it it's, it has to be a reframing altogether. Um, so, you know, for the average person who's trying to figure out what it might mean to be a Christian now that the bottom's been taken out in some ways, how, how does this all apply? Oh, you know, I actually think that's a real. I mean, it's a real important question, and I, I'll put it this way: um, the New Testament has canonized a whole bunch of Christologies. And I mean, like, the conclusions, you get to the big questions, like, who is Jesus and what did God do? Um, And for so long, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of Paul and company, Hebrews, but you always read them from some particular tradition where they kind of give you glasses and you learn how to interpret this multiplicity of testimonies to the risen Christ in the body of the believers uh, through your tradition's conclusions, be it the ecumenical councils or, you know, John Wesley or Luther or Calvin. And I think that uh, we're at a place where because people have encountered the tradition in uh, more and more parts of the church are narrow, narrow what you're allowed to believe because they're insecure about, uh, uh, you know, once you get rid of finality and closure and um, certainty, people jump out the room. Well, interesting enough, the early church was brilliant on this move. We like canonized a whole bunch of answers that don't line up. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't even die on the same day in all the gospels. Do you realize that? Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I, I realized this when I was in fifth grade because I was a Baptist. We charted out Bible verses, yeah. not for foreign policy, because I was an edgy Baptist. But I charted out, and I realized the Passion Week, he doesn't die on the same day. He says different stuff in each gospel from the cross, you know? And uh, all of those are canonized, and it wasn't a mistake. That, to and underneath it, theologically, and each of those authors of the four gospels, and then the other authors in the New Testament, have different answers to who Jesus was and what God did. And they're all in scripture. And I think that is a helpful thing for us to acknowledge when a whole bunch of us are more or less confident and have very divergent answers for the who and the what about Jesus today. But what if the the, the New Testament itself is like, some of you, you're rolling deep with John, right? When you show up at church and they're like, who's Jesus? You're like, whoa, Jesus, why even start there? How about the eternal Logos? Can you handle that today? Like, in the beginning was the Word. Yeah, eternal Word. Principle of reason for all existence. You want to know what it looks like? Jesus, you're welcome. I'm the Gospel of John. And then the guy next to you in the... uh, Bam, (laughs) mic drop. Yeah, Yeah, okay. (laughs) And you're like, and I hope you all believe that because hell sucks. And then then the guy next to you is like, I... uh, I kind of like Gospel of Mark. You know, Jesus is kind of angry and frustrated the whole time, thinks the world's about to collapse, not sure his disciples are worthwhile, and he dies feeling God completely abandoned him, 
And some people tacked on a thing for the resurrection, but it says they didn't tell anyone. And you're just like, whoa, that's a very low Christology. You know, um, I'm not sure that's acceptable. You're like, yeah, it is. Y'all canonized it. I'm a member. Right? Like, and just think of like how the New Testament includes a multiplicity of answers. The I'm here, even though I'm not sure I'm going to tell anyone, and Jesus felt like God left him out, Mark, to eternal God, John, and things in between. Um, the, the, the beautiful thing about that decision not to harmonize and synthesize all the Gospels is you have very deep, you could say conservative, biblical uh, reasons for making space for people to, ex- to give testimonies for how they encounter Christ in their doubts and their struggles, in their questions about history and science and pluralism and all that kind of stuff. And if all you can manage is, I don't really know if God is real right now, but I'm here, then someone says, thank you, Mark, right? Like, yeah. I think that's so such a gift. And the mm-hmm. guy who tried to harmonize everything in the early church, Tatian? That guy. Yeah, that guy. heretic. He was condemned as yeah. a heretic. Well, that you know what that'll that'll preach. So now, with uh, every eye closed and, oh, no, no, no. and every head bowed, <laughs> no, but you know, I think that is a good way to to end our time because I think it gives people a vision or a space where our doubts and our questions and you bring such an energy trip to this that it's an exciting possibility that that multiplicity is welcome in this community of faith. And I think for a lot of people, they feel that they are now outside because they may have more of a Markan faith right now that says, you know what, God seems to have abandoned me and I'm not sure about all this resurrection stuff and yet here we have it in our Bible. Or then there's this space for these other group that we might be kind of uncomfortable that they're in because mm-hmm. they seem to be pretty dogmatic and philosophical about all of this stuff and, and yet here we have the community of faith that can contain all of that. And that just seems to be a great vision for us to end our, our time on. Um, but is there anything else you would want to share for people? Again, I think a lot of I think a lot of people will resonate with some of the things that you're talking about because of of the space they're in. But any final words as your benediction here for these folks? Hmm. I mean, I would just say if you're interested, like you could just Google me on the internet, and then plenty of things will show up. But the the thing I think about Jesus that I find really compelling. And really the reason I stayed a Christian when I went through my, you know, philosophically postmodern deconstructionist phase, I was a bad atheist because I was a Baptist atheist, so I still read the Bible every day. (laughs) I just didn't think there was anything there. And it was a week before Easter, and I was in my senior year, I think, of college, and I was reading the Bible like one in the morning slightly inebriated, and I read the sermon, or or Jesus from the cross in Luke, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And and I I mean, it's hard to describe one of those moments where you feel like you get swallowed up in like a big divine envelope of lovingness, but it Mm -hmm. happened, and I remember revolting from feeling like fully embraced. And mm-hmm. I was sitting there thinking about this line from Jesus from the cross. And like in one part, like the obvious thing, like, Father, forgive them. 
But like, if there is an ultimate reality, I hope it's as loving as the one Jesus called Abba, right? And able to forgive even the people murdering Jesus at that moment. But the part that lingered with me the most was we they know not what they do. And it's that tension between the eternal parental picture of love that exists even for the one torturing someone unjustly, like everyone gets this eternal love. And what does it mean to recognize we don't know what to do? Human beings have like a beautiful side and a really sucky side. And we do Mm -hmm. all sorts of things and we don't understand why. And it hurts and harms people. And having both of those there, like, I know we don't know what we're doing and it's ridiculous. But if I'm going to lean into something, give myself to something, I want it to be as beautiful as Father, forgive them because they're dumb. And it's like (laughs) from that place that I kind of reawakened or came to own that what we talked about earlier, existential register again. And like, I don't, if, if you're in one of those places, like, there's no need to hurry it. Just <laughs> realize that, that what you're waiting for isn't a list of answers to your questions. Uh, it's like another first date, another moment uh, or experience where you get to lean into something so beautiful you want to chase it to find out if it's true. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Trip. it's Thank you, Trip. Always great talking to you. You're just so, uh, just brilliant. Weird. weird. Oh, yeah, weird. I mean, yeah. No. Well, uh, no, just. But, but I mean that in a good way. <laughs> and, and I mean that in a Christian way. Actually. Okay. So, all right. I thought so. No, it's, it's great to have you here. And, uh, yeah, I think people are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. So, thanks so much for, for hopping on and, and joining us from overseas. Oh, it was fun. Yep. Thank See ya. You, Trip. See ya. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A big thank you to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Zach Robishaw, Glenn Swanson, James Christofferson, Amanda Baggett, Phil Spawn, Jason Kerrigan, Jane Smith, and Bruce Sims. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate, and web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. <laughs> well, we sort of like, you know, we, we want to have people talk about their passions. You know, that's part of it. I mean, the reality is we know nothing about Jesus, Trip. Yeah, we don't I, even believe look, in him anymore. I've read the internet. I know that you know nothing about Jesus. <laughs> it, they're like the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Right. I don't know I what know. God... Yeah. <laughs> Not our Lord and Savior, Jesus motherfucking Christ. He isn't a part of that. <laughs> Clearly. Well, you come uh, at, you come to put us on the right path. That's yeah, right. I'm here to witness. Trip. People should tell me you thank are. you. 
At the end of this, I'll ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, but I won't know if you are. So okay, that's good. Well, we have an aisle right here. Um, people can walk down the aisle. That's what I'm either eye. You're an old Baptist, aren't you? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm ordained Baptist, married to you're ordained Baptist. Like you're still a Baptist. Oh, that's, hell yeah, that's, I am. That's that's, that's, that's coming through. <laughs> if a lot you need, bell. if you need, when was some the last time someone asked to give you know, like a call to faith at your podcast? If you need it to happen. You just tell me. Mm, if you're like, okay. I need someone to help my street cred. So if Trip manages to identify with every Christological heresy, but with passion, and we need to <laughs> help his PR at the end, we'll just ask him to give an invitation. <laughs> but we won't ask him to close their eyes. They no. might be driving. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.